From the Conference Center at Temple Square in Salt Lake City, this is the Saturday afternoon session of the 187th Semi-Annual General Conference of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, with speakers selected from the general authorities and general officers of the church. The music for this session is provided by a youth choir from stakes in the Midvale and Sandy, Utah areas. This broadcast is furnished as a public service by Bonneville Distribution. Any reproduction, recording, transcription, or other use of this program without written consent is prohibited. President Dieter F. Uchtdorf, second counselor in the First Presidency of the Church, will conduct this session. Dear brothers and sisters, dear friends, we welcome you to this Saturday afternoon session of the 187th Semi-Annual General Conference of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. We send our greetings to our dear President Thomas S. Monson, who is watching the proceedings at his home. President Monson, we love you. We extend our greetings to all who are in attendance or who are participating by means of television, radio, or the Internet. We likewise welcome those who are viewing the meeting in stake centers in various parts of the world where the conference is being carried by satellite transmission. The music for this session will be provided by Youth Choir from stakes in the Midvale and Sandy, Utah areas under the direction of Leah Tarrant with Linda Margetz at the organ. The choir will open this meeting by singing, Come, ye children of the Lord. The invocation will then be offered by Elder Lawrence E. Corbridge of the Seventy.
Our dear Heavenly Father, we are so gratefully blessed and to be living at this time in the dispensation of the fullness of times gathered together in this great conference throughout the whole of the world. We have the fullness of the gospel. We have thy word in scripture and living prophets and by the voice of thy spirit. We are especially grateful, ever grateful, for thy Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank thee for the restoration of priesthood authority, ordinances, and covenants to qualify us for thy presence. We thank thee, O God, for a prophet, and pray that he will know of our love for him and that we miss him this day. Thou hast said that as well might man put forth his puny arm to turn back the mighty Missouri River in its decreed course, as to stop thee, the Almighty God, from pouring out knowledge upon the heads of Latter-day Saints everywhere. May that be our blessing in this conference, this day we pray, in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. President Henry B. Eyring, First Counselor and the First Presidency, will now present the General Officers and Area Seventies of the Church for sustaining vote. Brothers and sisters, I will now present to you the General Authorities Area 70s, and General Auxiliary Presidencies of the Church for your sustaining vote. It is proposed that we sustain Thomas Spencer Monson as Prophet, Seer, and Revelator, and President of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, Henry Benyon Eyring as First Counselor in the First Presidency and Dieter Friedrich Huchdorf as second counselor in the first presidency. Those in favor may manifest it. Those opposed, if any, may manifest it. It is proposed that we sustain Russell Marion Nelson as president of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles and the following as members of that quorum. Russell M. Nelson, Dallin H. Oaks, M. Russell Ballard, Robert D. Hales, Jeffrey R. Holland, David A. Bednar, Quentin L. Cook, R. Todd Christofferson, Neil L. Anderson, Ronald A. Rasband, Gary E. Stevenson, and Dale G. Renmond. Those in favor, please manifest it. Any opposed may so indicate. It is proposed that we sustain the counselors in the First Presidency and the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles as prophets, seers, and revelators. All in favor, please manifest it. Contrary, if there be any by the same sign. Elders Donald L. Hallstrom and Richard J. Maines have been released from serving as members of the Presidency of the Seventy. All who wish to show appreciation 
to these brethren for the service they have rendered may do so by the uplifted hand. It is proposed that we sustain Elder Juan Euseda and Patrick D. Kieran, who have been called to serve as members of the Presidency of the Seventy. Those willing to sustain these brethren in their new assignments, please manifest it. Any who are opposed may indicate by the same sign. It is proposed that we release with appreciation for their devoted service Elders Stanley G. Ellis, Larry R. Lawrence, and W. Craig Zwick as General Authority 70s and grant them emeritus status. Those who wish to join us in expressing gratitude to these brethren for their remarkable service, please so manifest. It is proposed that we release the following as Area 70s Pedro U. Aduru, Detlef H. Adler, Angel J. Alarcon, Windsor Balderrama, Christopher Charles, Robert M. Call, Jean R. Chittister, Ralph L. Dusnap, Angel Duarte, Peter F. Evans, Francisco D. Granja, Yuri A. Gushin, Clifford T. Harbertson, and Fioc Udu Leon, Luis M. Leal, Alexandro Lopez, El Jean Claude Maibaya, Declan O. Madu, Alexander T. Mestre, Jared R. Ocampo, Andrew M. O'Riordan, Jesus A. Ortiz, Abernavi Opajaro, Su Hong Pan, Robert C. Reen, Jorge Luis Romeo, Jorge El Salivar, Sidu Schmeil, Aline Spanos, Moroni B. Torgan, Stephen L. Toronto, Ricardo Valladeros, those who wish to join us in expressing appreciation for their excellent service, please manifest it. It is proposed that we sustain Torben Engberg as a, to serve as an Area 70. All in favor, please manifest it. Those opposed, if any. It is proposed that we sustain the other general authorities, Area 70s, and general auxiliary presidencies as presently constituted. All in favor, please manifest it. Contrary, if there be any by the same side, sign. Those who, those who opposed any of the proposals should contact their stake president. Brothers and sisters, we are grateful for your continued faith and prayers in behalf of the leaders of the Church. Thank you, President Eyring. The choir will now favor us with the medley of I'm Trying to Be Like Jesus and He Sent His Son. Following the singing, we will be pleased to hear from Elder Gary E. Stevenson of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles. He will be followed by Brother Stephen W. Owen, who serves as Young Men General President. Elder Quentin L. Cook of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles will then address us.
On August 21st of this year, two rare events occurred that captured the attention of people around the world. The first was the 90th birthday celebration of our beloved prophet, President Thomas S. Monson. At the time, I was on assignment in the Pacific area and was thrilled that the saints of Australia, Vanuatu, New Zealand, and French Polynesia were not only aware of his personal milestone, but they also rejoiced in celebrating it. I felt fortunate to share in their warm expressions of faith and love for this great man. What an inspiration it is to see the connection Latter-day Saints share with their prophet. Of course, President Monson, mindful of those desiring to wish him happy birthday, described an ideal birthday gift. Find someone who is having a hard time or is ill or lonely and do something for them. That's all I would ask. We love and sustain you, President Monson. The other rare and heavenly event occurring on the same day and captivating millions worldwide was a total solar eclipse. This was the first time such an eclipse had marched across the entire United States in 99 years. Have you ever seen a solar eclipse? A total solar eclipse occurs when the moon moves between the earth and the sun, almost completely blocking any light from the sun. This is a marvel to me. If you imagine the sun as the size of a common bicycle tire, the moon in comparison would be scarcely the size of a small pebble. How is it possible that the very source of our warmth, light, and life could be so greatly obstructed by something comparatively insignificant in size? Although the sun is 400 times larger than the moon, it is also 400 times farther away from the earth. From Earth's perspective, this geometry makes the sun and moon appear to be the same size. When the two are aligned just right, the moon seems to obscure the entire sun. Friends and family of mine who were in the zone of total eclipse described how light was replaced by darkness, the stars appeared, and birds quit singing. The air became chilly as temperatures in an eclipse can decrease by more than 20 degrees Fahrenheit. They described a sense of awe, astonishment, and even anxiety, knowing an eclipse brings certain hazards. However, they all exercise care to prevent permanent eye damage or spiritual eclipse during the eclipse event. Safety was made possible because they wore glasses equipped with special filtered lenses that protected their eyes from any potential harm. In the same manner that the very small moon can block the magnificent sun, extinguishing its light and warmth, a spiritual eclipse can occur when we allow minor and troublesome obstructions to get so close they block out the magnitude, brightness, and warmth of the light of Jesus Christ and His gospel. Elder Neil A. Maxwell took this analogy even further when he stated, Even something as small as a man's thumb, when held very near the eye, can blind him to the very large sun. Yet the sun is still there. Brightness is brought upon man by himself when we draw other things too close, placing them first, we obscure our vision of heaven. Clearly, none of us wants to purposefully obscure our vision of heaven or allow a spiritual eclipse to occur in our lives. 
Let me share some thoughts that may assist us in preventing spiritual eclipse from causing us permanent spiritual damage. Do you recall my description of special eyewear used to protect those viewing a solar eclipse from eye damage or even eclipse blindness? Looking at a spiritual eclipse through the protecting and softening lens of the Spirit provides a gospel perspective, thus protecting us from spiritual blindness. Let's consider some examples. With the words of the prophets in our hearts and the Holy Spirit as our counselor, we can gaze at partially blocked heavenly light through gospel glasses, avoiding the harm of a spiritual eclipse. So how do we put on gospel glasses? Here are some examples. Our gospel glasses inform us that the Lord desires that we partake of the sacrament each week, that we study the scriptures and have daily prayer. They also inform us that Satan will tempt us not to and that he seeks to take away our agency through distractions and worldly temptations. Even in Job's day, there was spiritual eclipse described as, they meet with darkness in the daytime and grope in the noonday as in the night. Brothers and sisters, when I speak of seeing through gospel glasses, I'm not suggesting that we don't acknowledge or discuss the challenges we face or that we walk blissfully ignorant of the traps and evils the enemy has placed before us. I'm not speaking of wearing binders, but just the opposite. I'm suggesting that we look at challenges through the lens of the gospel. Elder Oaks observed, perspective is the ability to see all relevant information in a meaningful relationship. A gospel perspective expands our sight to an eternal view. When you put on gospel glasses, you find enhanced perspective, focus, and vision in the way that you think about your priorities, your problems, your temptations, and even your mistakes. You will see brighter light that you could not see without them. Ironically, it is not only the negative that can cause spiritual eclipse. Often admirable or positive endeavors can be drawn so close that they blot out gospel light and bring darkness. These dangers or distractions could include education and prosperity, power and influence, ambition, even talents and gifts. President Dieter F. Uchtdorf has taught that any virtue, when taken to an extreme, can become a vice. There comes a point where milestones can become millstones and ambitions albatrosses around our necks. Let me share in greater detail examples that could become catalysts for avoiding our own spiritual eclipses. I spoke recently at BYU Women's Conference. I described how technology, including social media, facilitates facilitates spreading a knowledge of the Savior throughout every nation, kindred, tongue, and people. These technologies include websites like LDS.org and Mormon.org, mobile apps such as Gospel Library, Mormon Channel, LDS Tools, and Family Tree, and social media platforms including Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and Pinterest. These modalities have generated hundreds of millions of likes, shares, views, retweets, and pins, and are very effective in sharing the gospel. All of the virtues and appropriate use of these technologies notwithstanding, there are risks associated with them when drawn too close can put us in a spiritual eclipse, potentially blocking the brightness and warmth of the gospel. 
The use of social media, mobile apps, and games can be inordinately time-consuming and can reduce face-to-face interaction. This loss of personal conversation can affect marriages, take the place of valuable spiritual practices, and stifle the development of social skills, especially among youth. Two additional risks related to social media are idealized reality and debilitating comparisons. Many, if not most, of the pictures posted on social media tend to portray life at its very best, often unrealistically. We've all seen beautiful images of home decor, wonderful vacation spots, smiling selfies, elaborate food preparation, and seemingly unobtainable body images. Here, for example, is an image that you might see on someone's social media account. However, it doesn't quite capture the full picture of what is actually going on in real life. (laughs) Comparing our own seemingly average existence with others' well-edited, perfectly crafted lives as represented on social media may leave us with feelings of discouragement, envy, and even failure. One person who shared numerous posts of her own said, perhaps only partly in jest, what's the point of being happy if you're not going to post it? As Sister Oscarson reminded us this morning, success in life doesn't come down to how many likes we get or how many social media friends or followers we have. It does, however, have something to do with meaningfully connecting with others and adding light to their lives. Hopefully, we can learn to be more real, find more humor, and experience less discouragement when confronted with images that may portray idealized reality and too often lead to debilitating comparisons. Comparison apparently is not just a sign of our times. The Apostle Paul warned the people of his day that they measuring themselves by themselves and comparing themselves among themselves are not wise. With so many appropriate and inspired uses of technology, let us use it to teach, inspire, lift, and encourage others to become their finest, and rather than to portray our idealized virtual selves. Let us also teach and demonstrate the righteous use of technology to the rising generation and warn against the associated hazards and destructive use of it. Viewing social media through the lens of the gospel can prevent it from becoming a spiritual eclipse in our lives. Let's now address the age-old stumbling block of pride. Pride is the opposite of humility, which is a willingness to submit to the will of the Lord. When prideful, we tend to take honor to ourselves rather than giving it to others, including the Lord. Pride is often competitive. It is a tendency to seek to become more and presume that we are better than others. Pride often results in feelings of anger and hatred. It causes one to hold grudges or to withhold forgiveness. Pride is swallowed in the Christ-like attribute of humility. Relationships even with close family and loved ones, especially with close family and loved ones, even between husbands and wives, are fostered in humility and are stymied by pride. Many years ago, an executive of a large retailer called me to talk about his company that was being bought out by one of its competitors. He and numerous other headquarters personnel were extremely anxious that they might lose their jobs. 
Knowing that I was well acquainted with senior management of the acquiring company, he asked if I would be willing to both introduce him and give a strong reference on his behalf, even to arrange a meeting for him. He then concluded with the following statement. You know what they say, the meek shall perish. I understood his comment was more than likely intended as humor. I got the joke, but there was an important principle that I felt might ultimately be of use to him. I replied, actually, that isn't what they say. It's just the opposite. The meek shall inherit the earth, is what they say. In my experience in the Church, as well as throughout my professional career, some of the greatest, most effective people I have known have been among the most meek and humble. Humility and meekness fit hand in glove. May we remember none, none is acceptable before God save the meek and lowly in heart. I pray that we will strive to avoid the spiritual eclipse of pride by embracing the virtue of humility. In conclusion, a solar eclipse is indeed a remarkable phenomenon of nature during which the beauty, warmth, and light of the sun can be completely covered by a comparatively insignificant object causing darkness and chill. A similar phenomenon can be re replicated in a spiritual sense when otherwise small and insignificant matters are drawn too close and block the beauty, warmth, and heavenly light of the gospel of Jesus Christ, replacing it with cold darkness. Eyewear designed to protect the sight of those in, in the zone of a total solar eclipse can prevent permanent damage. Gospel glasses, comprised of a knowledge and testimony of gospel principles and ordinances, provide spiritual protection and clarity for someone exposed to the hazards of a spiritual eclipse. If you discover anything that seems to be blocking your light and joy of the gospel in your life, I invite you to look through a lens of the gospel to not allow insignificant and inconsequential matters obscure your eternal view of the great plan of happiness. In short, don't let life's distractions eclipse heaven's light. I bear testimony that no matter the obstruction that may block our vision of gospel light, the light is still there. That source of warmth, truth, and brightness is the gospel of Jesus Christ. I bear testimony of a loving Heavenly Father and of His Son, Jesus Christ, and of His role as our Savior and Redeemer. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Several years ago, President Gordon B. Hinckley <clears throat> attended a college football game. He was there to announce that the stadium would be named after the team's longtime beloved coach who was about to retire. The team desperately wanted to win the game to honor their coach. President Hinckley was invited to visit the locker room and share some encouraging words. Inspired by his words, that team on that day went on to win that game. Today, I would like to speak to those who may worry that they are not winning in life. The truth is, of course, that we all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. 
While there may be undefeated seasons in sports, there aren't any in life. But I testify that the Savior Jesus Christ worked out a perfect atonement and gave us the gift of repentance, our path back to a perfect brightness of hope and a winning life. Too often we think of repentance as something miserable and depressing, but God's plan is the plan of happiness, not the plan of misery. Repentance is uplifting and ennobling. It's sin that brings unhappiness. Repentance is our escape route. As Elder D. Todd Christofferson explained, without repentance there is no real progress or improvement in life. Only through repentance do we gain access to the atoning grace of Jesus Christ and salvation. Repentance points us to freedom, confidence, and peace. My message to all, especially to the youth, is that repentance is always positive. When we speak of repentance, we aren't just talking about self-improvement efforts. True repentance is more than that. It is inspired by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and His power to forgive our sins. As Elder Dale G. Renlin has taught us, without the Redeemer, repentance becomes simply miserable behavior modification. We can try to change our behavior on our own, but only the Savior can remove our stains and lift our burdens, enabling us to pursue the path of obedience with confidence and strength. The joy of repentance is more than the joy of living a decent life. It's the joy of forgiveness, of being clean again, and of drawing closer to God. Once you've experienced that joy, no lesser substitute will do. True repentance inspires us to make our obedience a commitment, a covenant beginning with baptism and renewed each week at the Lord's Supper, the sacrament. There we receive the promise that we can always have His Spirit to be with us, with all of the joy and peace that come from His constant companionship. This is the fruit of repentance, and this is what makes repentance joyful. I love the parable of the prodigal son. There's something poignant about that pivotal moment when the prodigal came to himself. Sitting in a pigsty, wishing he could have filled his belly with the husks that the swine did eat, he finally realized that he had wasted not only his father's inheritance, but also his own life. With faith that his father might accept him back, if not as a son, then at least as a servant, he determined to put his rebellious past behind him and go home. I've often wondered about the son's long walk home. Were there times when he hesitated and wondered, how will I be received by my father? Perhaps he even took a few steps back toward the swine. Imagine how the story would be different if he had given up. But faith kept him moving, and faith kept his father watching and waiting patiently until finally, when he was yet a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion, and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. And the son said unto the father, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in thy sight, and am no more worthy to be called thy son. But the father said to his servants, Bring forth the best robe, and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand, and shoes on his feet. For this my son was dead, and is alive again. 
He was lost and is found. Brothers and sisters, we are all prodigals. We all have to come to ourselves, usually more than once, and choose the path that leads back home. It's a choice we make daily throughout our lives. We often associate repentance with grievous sins that require a mighty change. But repentance is for everyone. Those who are wandering in forbidden paths and are lost, as well as those who have gotten into the straight and narrow path and now need to press forward. Repentance both puts us on the right path and keeps us on the right path. It is for those who are just beginning to believe, those who have believed all along, and those who need to begin again to believe. As Elder David A. Bednar has taught, most of us clearly understand that the Atonement is for sinners. I am not so sure, however, that we know and understand that the Atonement is also for saints, for good men and women who are obedient, worthy, and striving to become better. Recently, I visited a missionary training center when a brand new group of missionaries arrived. I was deeply moved as I watched them and observed the light in their eyes. They seemed so bright and happy and enthusiastic. And then the thought came to me, they have experienced faith unto repentance. This is why they are filled with joy and hope. I don't think that means they all had serious sins in their past. But I do think they knew how to repent. They had learned that repentance is positive, and they were ready and eager to share this joyful message with the world. This is what happens when we feel the joy of repentance. Consider the example of Enos. He had his own coming-to-himself moment. And after his guilt was swept away, his heart turned immediately to the welfare of others. Enos spent the rest of his life inviting all people to repent and rejoiced in it above that of the world. Repentance does that. It turns our hearts toward our fellow man because we know that the joy we feel is meant for everyone. I have a friend who grew up in a less active Latter-day Saint family. When he was a young adult, he too came to himself and decided to prepare for a mission. He became an excellent missionary. On his last day before returning home, the mission president interviewed him and asked him to bear his testimony. He did so, and after a tearful embrace, the president said, Elder, you could forget or deny everything you have just testified of in a matter of months if you do not continue to do the things that built your testimony in the first place. My friend later told me that he has prayed and read the scriptures daily since he returned from his mission. Being constantly nourished by the good word of God has kept him in the right way. You who are preparing for full-time missions and you who are returning, take note. It is not enough just to gain a testimony. You have to maintain it and strengthen it. As every missionary knows, if you stop pedaling a bicycle, it will fall. And if you stop feeding your testimony, it will weaken. This same principle applies to repentance. It is a lifelong pursuit, not a -a once-in-a-lifetime experience. To all who seek forgiveness, the youth, young single adults, parents, grandparents, and yes, even great-grandparents, I invite you to come home. Now is the time to begin. Do not procrastinate your day of repentance. Then, once you have made that decision, keep following the path. 
Our Father is waiting, longing to receive you. His arms are outstretched all the day long for you. The reward is worth the effort. Remember these words from Nephi. You must press forward with a steadfastness in Christ, having a perfect brightness of hope and a love of God and of all men. Wherefore, if ye shall press forward, feasting upon the word of Christ, and endure the end, behold, thus saith the Father, ye shall have eternal life. Sometimes the journey will seem long. After all, it is the journey toward eternal life. But it can be a joyous journey if we pursue it with faith in Jesus Christ and hope in His Atonement. I testify that the moment we set foot on the path of repentance, we invite the Savior's redeeming power into our lives. That power will steady our feet, expand our vision, and deepen our resolve to keep moving forward, step by step, until that glorious day when we finally return to our heavenly home. And hear our Father in heaven say to us, Well done. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Humility about who we are and God's purpose for us is essential. Since my service in the British mission as a young man, I have enjoyed British humor. It is sometimes characterized by a self-deprecating, modest, humble approach to life. An example of this is how summer is portrayed. British summers are relatively short and unpredictable. As one author in a low-key way said, I love the British summer. It is my favorite day of the year. (laughs) A favorite British cartoon character of mine was pictured in her bed waking up late in the morning and declaring to her dogs, Oh my goodness, I think we've overslept and we've missed summer. There is an analogy in this humor to our life on this beautiful earth. The scriptures are clear that our precious mortal existence is a very short time. It could be said that from an eternal perspective, our time on earth is as fleeting as a British summer. Sometimes man's purpose and very existence are also described in very humble terms. The prophet Moses was raised in what some today might call a privileged background. As recorded in the Pearl of Great Price, the Lord, preparing Moses for his prophetic assignment, gives him an overview of the world and all the children of men which are and were created. Moses' somewhat surprising reaction was, Now I know that man is nothing, which thing I never had supposed. Subsequently, God, in what amounts to a rebuttal to any feelings of unimportance that Moses may have felt, proclaimed his true purpose. For behold, this is my work and my glory to bring to pass the immortality and eternal life of man. We are all equal before God. His doctrine is clear. In the Book of Mormon we read, All are alike unto God, including black and white, bond and free, male and female. Accordingly, all are invited to come to the Lord. Anyone who claims superiority under the Father's plan 
because of characteristics like race, sex, nationality, language, or economic circumstances, is morally wrong and does not understand the Lord's true purpose for all of our Father's children. Unfortunately, in our day, in almost every segment of society, we see self-importance and arrogance flaunted while humility and accountability to God are denigrated. Much of society has lost its moorings and does not understand why we are on this earth. True humility, which is essential to achieve the Lord's purpose for us, is seldom evident. It is important to understand the magnitude of Christ's humility, righteousness, character, and intelligence as exemplified in the scriptures. It is foolish to underestimate the necessity of continuously striving for these Christ-like qualities and attributes on a day-by-day basis, particularly humility. The scriptures are clear that while this life is relatively short, it is incredibly significant. Amulek, who was a missionary companion of Alma in the Book of Mormon, said, This life is the time for men to prepare to meet God. Yea, behold, the day of this life is the day for men to perform their labors. We do not want, like my cartoon character, to sleep through this life. The Savior's example of humility and sacrifice for all mankind is the most profound event in history. The Savior, even as a member of the Godhead, was willing to come to earth as a lowly infant and begin an existence that included teaching and healing his brothers and sisters and ultimately suffering indescribable pain in Gethsemane and on the cross in order to perfect His Atonement. This act of love and humility on the part of Christ is known as His condescension. He did this for every man and woman God has or will create. Our Heavenly Father does not want His children to be discouraged or to give up on their quest for celestial glory. When we really contemplate God the Father and Christ the Son, who they are and what they have accomplished on our behalf, it fills us with reverence, awe, gratitude, and humility. Alma asked a question in his day that is pertinent today. If you have experienced a change of heart and if you have felt to sing the song of redeeming love, I would ask, can ye feel so now? Alma continued, could ye say? If you were called to die at this time, that you have been sufficiently humble. Every time I read about Alma the Younger relinquishing his role as head of state to preach the word of God, I am impressed. Alma clearly had a profound testimony of God the Father and Jesus Christ and felt accountable to them completely and without reservation. He had the correct priorities and humility to give up status and position because he realized that serving the Lord was more important. Having sufficient humility in our lives to help establish the Church is particularly valuable. An example in Church history is revealing. In June of 1837, the Prophet Joseph was inspired while in the Kirtland Temple to call Apostle Heber C. Kimball to take the gospel of Jesus Christ to England and open the door of salvation to that nation. Apostle Orson Hyde and a few others were assigned to accompany him. Elder Kimball's response was remarkable. Quote, the idea of being appointed to such an important mission was almost more than I could bear. I was nearly ready to sink 
under the burden which was placed upon me. Nevertheless, he undertook the mission with absolute faith, commitment, and humility. Sometimes humility is accepting callings when we do not feel adequate. Sometimes humility is serving faithfully when we feel capable of a more high-profile assignment. Humble leaders have verbally and by example established that it is not where we serve but how we faithfully serve. Sometimes humility is overcoming hurt feelings when we feel leaders or others have mistreated us. On July 23, 1837, the Prophet Joseph met with Elder Thomas B. Marsh, President of the Quorum of the Twelve. Elder Marsh was apparently frustrated that the Prophet had called two members of his quorum to go to England without consulting him. As Joseph met with Elder Marsh, any hurt feelings were put aside, and the Prophet received a remarkable revelation. It is now the 112th section of the Doctrine and Covenants. It gives incredible direction from heaven with respect to humility and missionary work. Verse 10 reads, Be thou humble, and the Lord thy God shall lead thee by the hand and give the answer to thy prayers. This revelation occurred the exact same day that Elders Kimball, Hyde, and John Goodson, full of humility, were declaring the restoration of the gospel of Jesus Christ in the Vauxhall Chapel in Preston, England. This was the first time missionaries had proclaimed the restored gospel outside of North America in this dispensation. Their missionary effort resulted in almost immediate convert baptisms and led to numerous faithful members. Subsequent parts of the Revelation guide the missionary effort in our day. They read in part, Whosoever ye shall send in my name shall have power to open the door of my kingdom unto any nation, inasmuch as they humble themselves before me and abide in my word and hearken to the voice of my Spirit. The humility that undergirded this incredible missionary effort allowed the Lord to establish His Church in a remarkable way. Gratefully, we continually see this in the Church today. Members, including the rising generation, give up their time and defer education and employment to serve missions. Many senior members leave employment and make other sacrifices in order to serve God in whatever capacity they are called. We do not allow personal issues to distract or divert us from accomplishing His purposes. Church service requires humility. We humbly serve as called with all our might, mind, and strength. At every level of the Church, it is important to understand the Christlike attribute of humility. The goal of honoring the Lord and submitting ourselves to His will is not as valued in today's society as it has been in the past. Some Christian leaders of other faiths believe we are living in a post-Christian world. For generations, the religious-based virtue of humility and the civic virtues of modesty and understatement have been the predominant standard. In today's world, there is an increased emphasis on pride, self-aggrandizement, and so-called authenticity, which sometimes leads to a lack of true humility. Some suggest the moral values for happiness today include be real, be strong, be productive, and most importantly, don't rely on other people because your fate is in your own hands. The scriptures advocate a different approach. 
They suggest that we should be true disciples of Jesus Christ. This entails establishing a powerful feeling of accountability to God and a humble approach to life. King Benjamin taught that the natural man is an enemy to God and advocated that we need to yield ourselves to the enticings of the Holy Spirit. He explained, among other things, that this requires becoming submissive, meek, humble, patient, and full of love. Some misuse authenticity as a celebration of the natural man and qualities that are the opposite of humility, kindness, mercy, forgiveness, and civility. We can celebrate our individual uniqueness as children of God without using authenticity as an excuse for unchristlike behavior. In our quest for humility, the modern Internet creates challenges to avoiding pride, to examples or the self-indulgent look-at-me approach, or attacking others by ranting on social media. One more example is the humble brag. It is defined as an ostensibly modest or self-deprecating statement or picture whose actual purpose is to draw attention to something of which one is proud. The prophets have always warned about pride and emphasizing the vain things of the world. The widespread deterioration of civil discourse is also a concern. The eternal principle of agency requires that we respect many choices with which we do not agree. Conflict and contention now often breach the boundaries of common decency. We need more modesty and humility. Alma cautions against being puffed up in the pride of your hearts and supposing that you are better one than another and persecuting the humble who walk after the holy order of God. I have found a genuine goodness among people of all faiths who are humble and feel accountable to God. Many of them subscribe to the Old Testament prophet Micah, who declared, What doth the Lord require of thee but to do justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with thy God? When we are truly humble, we pray for forgiveness and forgive others. As we read in Mosiah, Alma taught that as often as we repent, the Lord will forgive our trespasses. On the other hand, as indicated in the Lord's Prayer, When we do not forgive others' trespasses, we bring ourselves under condemnation. Because of the Atonement of Jesus Christ, through repentance, our sins are forgiven. When we do not forgive those who trespass against us, we are in effect rejecting the Savior's Atonement. Holding a grudge and refusing to forgive and refusing to humbly approach our relationships in a Christ-like manner truly brings us under condemnation. Holding a grudge is poisonous to our souls. Let me also caution against any form of arrogance. The Lord, through the prophet Moroni, makes a stark contrast between the arrogant and the humble. Fools mock, but they shall mourn, and my grace is sufficient for the meek. The Lord further declared, I give unto men weaknesses that they may be humble, and my grace is sufficient for all men that humble themselves before me. For if they humble themselves before me and have faith in me, then will I make weak things become strong unto them. Humility also includes being grateful for our numerous blessings and divine assistance. Humility isn't some grand, identifiable achievement 
or even overcoming some major challenge. It is a sign of spiritual strength. It is having the quiet confidence that day by day and hour by hour we can rely on the Lord, serve Him, and achieve His purposes. It is my prayer that in this contentious world we will continuously strive for true humility every day. A favorite poem puts it this way, The test of greatness is the way one meets the eternal every day. I bear a sure witness of the Savior and His Atonement and the overwhelming importance of humbly serving Him each and every day. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. The congregation will now join in the choir singing, There is sunshine in my soul today. After the singing, we will be pleased to hear from Elder Ronald A. Raspin of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles. He will be followed by Elder O. Vincent Halleck of the Seventy. This is the 187th Semi-Annual General Conference of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. You're listening to the 187th Semi-Annual General Conference of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints on KSL-FM Midvale, KSL Salt Lake City.
Brothers and sisters, as I stand here in this inspiring worldwide general conference and feel your strength and your spirits, I cannot help but think of the words of the Apostle Peter, Lord, it is good for us to be here. That is not exactly what Alma said after preaching to the people in Ammonihah. Alma left the city due to the wickedness of the people. Soon an angel appeared to Alma and called him to return to the city of Ammonihah and preach again unto the people of the city. Alma did so, speedily entering the city by another way. As he entered the city, he was unhungered, and he said to a man, Will ye give to an humble servant of God something to eat? And the man said unto him, I am a Nephite, and I know that thou art a holy prophet of God, for thou art the man whom an angel said in a vision, Thou shalt receive. The man was Amulek. Now did Alma just happen upon Amulek? No, it was no coincidence that he went into the city by the way that would lead him to this faithful man who would become his missionary companion. Elder Neil A. Maxwell once explained, None of us ever fully utilizes the people opportunities allocated to us within our circles of friendship. You and I may call these intersectings coincidence. This word is understandable for mortals to use, but coincidence is not an appropriate word to describe the workings of an omniscient God. He does not do things by coincidence, but by divine design. Our lives are like a chessboard, and the Lord moves us from one place to another if we are responsive to spiritual promptings. Looking back, we can see His hand in our lives. We can see such heavenly intervention when Nephi returns to get the plates from Laban. He was led by the Spirit, not knowing beforehand the things that he should do. Laban was soon before him, in a drunken stupor, and Nephi slayed him, retrieved the plates, and fled back to his brothers. Was he fortunate to just happen upon Laban, or was it by divine design? Significant events unfold in the gospel and in the Church that further the kingdom of God on on earth. They are not by accident, but by God's plan. He who fashioned this world can calm the seas with His word and can steer both Alma and Amulek and Nephi and Laban to be at the right place at precisely the right time. Likewise, events and associations unfold in each of our lives that further God's work on earth. Dear Elder Joseph B. Worthland spoke of an occasion when President Monson said to him, There is a guiding hand above all things. Often when things happen, it is not by accident. One day when we look back at the seeming coincidences of our lives, we will, we will realize that perhaps they weren't so coincidental after all.
Most often, our good works are known to only a few. They are, however, recorded in heaven, and one day we will stand as a witness of our whole-souled devotion to works of righteousness. No trial or calamity can derail God's plan of happiness. Indeed, by divine design, joy cometh in the morning. I came into the world to do the will of the Father, Jesus taught. Dear brothers and sisters, so have we. Through the experience of my own life's journey, I know that the Lord will move us on that seeming chessboard to do His work. What may appear to be a random chance is in fact overseen by a loving Father in heaven who can number the hairs of every head. Not even a sparrow falls to the ground without our Father's notice. The Lord is in the small details of our lives, and those incidents and opportunities are to prepare us to lift our families and others as we build the kingdom of God on earth. Remember, as the Lord said to Abraham, I know the end from the beginning. Therefore, my hand shall be over thee. The Lord placed me in a home with loving parents. By the world's standards, they were very ordinary people. My father, a devoted man, was a truck driver. My angel mother, a stay-at-home mom. The Lord helped me to find my lovely wife, Melanie. He prompted a businessman who became a dear friend to give me an employment opportunity. The Lord called me to serve in the mission field, both as a young man and as a mission president. He called me to the Quorum of the Seventy, and now He has called me as an apostle. Looking back, I realize I did not orchestrate any of those moves. The Lord did, just as He is orchestrating important moves for you and for those you love. What should you be looking for in your own life? What are God's miracles that remind you that He is close, saying, I am right here? Think of those times, some daily, when the Lord has acted in your life and then acted again. Treasure them as moments the Lord has shown confidence in you and in your choices. But allow Him to make more of you than you can make of yourself on your own. Treasure His involvement. Sometimes we consider changes in our plans as missteps on our journey. Think of them more as first steps to being on the Lord's errand. Some months ago, our granddaughter joined a youth group to tour several church history sites. The final itinerary noted that she would be passing through the very area where her missionary brother, our grandson, was serving. Our granddaughter had no intention of seeing her brother on his mission. However, as the bus entered the town where her brother was serving, two missionaries could be seen walking down the street. One of the missionaries was her brother. Anticipation filled the bus as the youth asked the bus driver to pull over so she could greet her brother. In less than one minute, 
After tears and sweet words, her brother was back on the way to fulfill his missionary duties. We later learned that her brother had been on that street for less than five minutes, walking from an appointment to his car. Now, Heavenly Father can put us in situations with specific intent in mind. He has done so in my life, and He is doing so in yours, as He did in the lives of our dear grandchildren. Each of us is precious and loved by the Lord, who cares, who whispers, and who watches over us in ways unique to each of us. He is infinitely wiser and more powerful than mortal men and women. He knows our challenges, our triumphs, and the righteous desires of our hearts. Over a year ago, as I was walking through Temple Square, one of the sister missionaries approached me and asked, Do you remember me? I am from Florida. She told me her name, Sister Ida Chilon. Yes, I remembered meeting her and her family. Her stake president had suggested we visit their family. It became apparent that we were there for their daughter, Aida, who had not been baptized. After our visit and more than a year of teaching and fellowshipping, Aida was baptized. After we visited on Temple Square, she wrote me a letter. She said, I know with all my heart that Heavenly Father knows each of us and that He continues to place us in each other's paths for a reason. Thank you for being one of my missionaries, for reaching out to me and finding me five years ago. Aida also sent me her conversion story, recounting the divine coincidences which have taken place in her life that have led to her baptism, her confirmation, serving a mission on Temple Square, and her recent temple marriage. Was it a mere coincidence that the stake president had steered us to the Chilon home or that she and I would later meet on Temple Square? Aida's testimony bears record that this was all part of God's divine design. The Lord loves to be with us. It is no coincidence that when you are feeling His Spirit and acting on first promptings that you feel Him as He promised. I will go before your face. I will be on your right hand and on your left, and my Spirit shall be in your hearts and by angels round about you to bear you up. We all have similar things happen in our lives. We may meet someone who seems familiar renew an acquaintance, or find common ground with a stranger. When those occur, perhaps the Lord is reminding us that we are all truly brothers and sisters. We are really engaged in the same cause, in what Joseph Smith called the cause of Christ. Now, where does agency fit in a divine design? We have a choice— to follow or to not follow our Savior and His chosen leaders. The pattern is clear in the Book of Mormon when the Nephites had turned away from the Lord. Mormon lamented, and they saw that the Spirit of the Lord did no more preserve them. 
Yea, it had withdrawn from them, because the Spirit of the Lord doth not dwell in unholy temples. Therefore the Lord did cease to preserve them by his miraculous and matchless power, for they had fallen into a state of unbelief and awful wickedness. Not all that the Lord asks of us is a result of how strong we are, how faithful we are, or what we may know. Think of Saul, who the Lord stopped on the road to Damascus. He was going the wrong direction in his life, and it had nothing to do with north or south. Saul was divinely redirected. Known later as Paul, his apostolic ministry reflected what the Lord already knew he was capable of doing and becoming, not what he had set out to do as Saul. In the same manner, the Lord knows what each of us is capable of doing and becoming. What did the Apostle Paul teach? And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to His purposes. When we are righteous, willing, and able, when we are striving to be worthy and qualified, we progress to places we never imagined and become part of Heavenly Father's divine design. Each of us has divinity within us. When we see God working through us and with us, may we be encouraged, even grateful for that guidance. When our Father in Heaven said, This is my work and my glory to bring to pass the immortality and eternal life of man, he was talking about all of his children, you in particular. The Lord's hand is guiding you. By divine design, He is in the small details of your life as well as the major milestones. As it says in Proverbs, Trust in the Lord with all thine heart, and He shall direct thy paths. I testify that He will bless you, sustain you, and bring you peace. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. I have had the great blessing of serving among the saints of the Pacific for most of my adult life. The faith, love, and amazing sacrifices of these devoted saints fills me with inspiration, gratitude, and joy. Their stories are like your own. It has occurred to me that these saints have much in common with the widow who the Savior observed while he sat and beheld how the people cast money into the treasury and many that were rich cast in much. And there came a certain poor widow, and she threw in two mites. And he called unto him his disciples, and saith unto them, Verily I say unto you, that this poor widow has cast more in than they all which have cast into the treasury. For they did cast in of their abundance, but she of her want did cast all that she had, even all her living." Even though her two mites were a meager contribution, to the Savior her gift was of supreme value because she gave everything. 
In that moment, the Savior fully knew the widow, for her gift showed him her heart. The quality and depth of her love and faith were such that she gave knowing that her want would be supplied. I have seen that same heart in the saints of the Pacific. In a small village on one of these islands, an older man and his wife accepted the invitation of the missionaries to sincerely ask the Lord if the lessons they were being taught were true. In this process, they also considered the consequences of the commitments that they would need to make if the answer they had received would lead them to accepting the restored gospel. They fasted and prayed to know the truthfulness of the Church and the veracity of the Book of Mormon. The answer to their prayers came in the form of a sweet but ringing affirmation, Yes, it is true. Having received this witness, they chose to be baptized. This was not a choice without personal cost. Their decision and baptism carried with it a high price. They lost employment. They sacrificed social standing. Important friendships dissolved, and the support, love, and respect of family was withdrawn. They now walked to church each Sunday, exchanging awkward glances with friends and neighbors who were walking in the opposite direction. In these difficult circumstances, this good brother was asked how he felt about their decision to join the church. His simple and unwavering reply was, It is true, isn't it? Our choice was clear. These two newly converted saints truly had the heart of the widow. They, like the widow, cast in all that they could give, knowingly giving of their want. As a product of their faith and believing hearts and enduring faith, during these hard times, their burdens were lightened. They were aided and surrounded by supportive and ministering Church members, and they were personally strengthened by their service in Church callings. After casting in all, the greatest day came when they were sealed in the temple as an eternal family. Like converts under Alma's leadership, the Lord did strengthen them that they could bear up their burdens with ease, and they did submit cheerfully and with patience to all the will of the Lord. Such is the heart of the widow exemplified in this wonderful couple. Let me speak of another experience where the heart of the widow was in full view. In Samoa, we labor with village councils to gain access for missionaries to preach the gospel. A few years ago, I had a conversation with a chief from a village where the missionaries had been prohibited for many, many years. My conversation occurred not too long after the paramount chief had opened the village to the Church, permitting our missionaries to teach those interested in learning about the gospel and its doctrines. After so many years to have this miraculous turn of events, I was curious to learn about what had happened to cause the paramount chief to take this action. I asked about this, and the chief with whom I was conversing replied, A man can live in the dark for a period, but there will come a time when he will long to come into the light. The paramount chief in opening the village demonstrated the heart of a widow, a heart that softens when the warmth and light of the truth is revealed. This leader was willing to relinquish years of tradition, confront much opposition, and stand firm so that others might be blessed. This was a leader whose heart was focused on the welfare and happiness of his people, rather than on considerations of tradition, culture, and personal power. 
He gave away those concerns in favor of what President Thomas S. Monson has taught us. As we follow the example of the Savior, ours will be the opportunity to be a light in the lives of others. Finally, let me share with you one more experience among the saints of the Pacific that remains deeply and spiritually rooted in my soul. Some years ago, I was a young counselor to a bishop in a new ward in American Samoa. We had 99 members, consisting of subsistence farmers, cannery workers, government employees, and their families. When the First Presidency announced in 1977 that a temple was going to be constructed in Samoa, there was joy and thanksgiving expressed by all of us. Going to the temple from American Samoa at that time required traveling to either Hawaii or New Zealand. This was a costly journey that was beyond the reach of many faithful Church members. During this period of time, members were encouraged to donate to a building fund to assist the construction of temples. In this spirit, our bishopric asked the board members to prayerfully consider what they could give. A date was set for families to gather to offer their donations. Later, as these donations were opened in private, our bishopric was humbled and touched by the faith and generosity of our wonderful ward members. Knowing each family and their circumstances, I felt a deep and abiding sense of awe, respect, and humility. These were, in every way, modern-day widow's mites, given freely from their want, with a joy in the promised blessing of a construction of the Holy Temple of the Lord in Samoa. These families had consecrated all they could to the Lord with the faith that they would not be left wanting. Their gift gift manifested their widows' hearts. All who who gave did so willingly and joyfully because the widows' heart within them could see with the eye of faith the great crowning blessings in store for their families and for all the people of Samoa and American Samoa for generations to come. I know that their consecrated offerings, their widow's mites, were known and accepted by the Lord. The widow's heart, the heart of the widow who gave her two mites, is a heart that will give all by making sacrifices, by enduring hardships, persecution, and rejection, and by bearing burdens of many kinds. The heart of the widow is a heart that senses, feels, and knows the light of truth and will give anything to embrace that truth. It is also to help others to see the same light and come to the same measure of eternal happiness and joy. Finally, the heart of the widow is defined by a willingness to give all for the building up of the kingdom of God on the earth. Let us join as worldwide saints in doing that which is necessary to have the widow's heart, truly rejoicing in the blessing that will, that will fill the want that results. My prayer for each of us is a plea to have the heart to bear our burdens, make the necessary sacrifices, and have the will to do and to give. I promise that the Lord will not leave you wanting. The heart of the widow is filled with thanksgiving that the Savior was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, so that we would not need to taste the bitter cup. In spite of our weaknesses and failings, and because of them, He continues to offer his hands, which were pierced for our sakes. He will lift us up if we are willing to come into the light of his gospel, embrace him, 
and allow him to fill our want. I bear my testimony of the great love that we can share as disciples and followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. I love and sustain President Thomas S. Monson as the prophet of God on the earth. The Book of Mormon is another witness of Jesus Christ to the world, and I invite all to read it and discover its message for you. All who accept the Lord's invitation to come unto him will find peace, love, and light. Jesus Christ is our great exemplar and redeemer. It is only through Jesus Christ and the miracle of his infinite atonement that we can receive eternal life. Of this I bear witness in his holy name, even Jesus Christ. Amen. We are indeed grateful for all who have spoken to us this afternoon and for the touching music of that beautiful youth choir that has provided this uh, wonderful music this afternoon. We remind the brethren of the general priesthood meeting, which will commence in the conference center this evening at 6 p.m. Mountain Daylight Time. The nationwide Mormon Tabernacle Choir broadcast will be tomorrow morning from 9.30 to 10 a.m. Mountain Daylight Time. The Sunday morning session of conference will immediately follow. The concluding speaker for this session will be President Russell M. Nelson, President of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles. Following his remarks, the choir will close this meeting by singing, Rejoice, the Lord is King. The benediction will then be offered by Elder Alan F. Packer of the Seventy. In 1986, I was invited to give a special lecture at a university in Accra, Ghana. There I met a number of dignitaries, including an African tribal king. As we visited prior to the lecture, the king spoke to me only through his linguist, who then translated for me. I responded to the linguist, and the linguist translated my responses to the king. After my lecture, the king made his way directly to me, but this time without his linguist. To my surprise, he spoke in perfect English. (laughs) The queen's English, I might add. The king seemed puzzled. Just who are you, he said. I replied, I am an ordained apostle of Jesus Christ. The king asked, What can you teach me about Jesus Christ? I responded with a question. May I ask what you already know about him? The king's response revealed he was a serious student of the Bible and one who loved the Lord. I then asked if he knew about the ministry of Jesus Christ to the people of ancient America. As I expected, he did not. I explained. After the Savior's crucifixion and resurrection, he came to the people of ancient America 
where he taught his gospel. He organized his church and asked his disciples to keep a record of his ministry among them. That record, I continued, is what we know as the Book of Mormon. It is another testament of Jesus Christ. It is a companion scripture to the Holy Bible. At this point, the king became very interested. I turned to the mission president accompanying me, and I asked if he had a copy of the Book of Mormon with him. He pulled one from his briefcase. I opened it to 3 Nephi, chapter 11, and together the king and I read the Savior's sermon to the Nephites. I then presented the copy of the Book of Mormon to him. His response lodged in my mind and heart forever. You could have given me diamonds or rubies, but nothing is more precious to me than this additional knowledge about the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, after experiencing the power of the Savior's words in 3 Nephi, the king proclaimed, If I am converted and join the Church, I will bring my whole tribe with me. (laughs) Oh, King, I said, it doesn't work that way. Conversion is an individual matter. The Savior ministered to the Nephites one by one. Each individual receives a witness and testimony of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Well, my brothers and sisters, how precious is the Book of Mormon to you? If you were offered diamonds or rubies or the Book of Mormon, which would you choose? Honestly, which is of greater worth to you? Remember in the Sunday morning session of the April 2017 General Conference, President Thomas S. Monson pleaded with each of us to prayerfully study and ponder the Book of Mormon each day. Many have responded to our Prophet's plea. Let me say that neither I nor eight-year-old Riley knew anyone was taking our pictures. Notice that Riley is reading his Book of Mormon with the help of an I am a child of God bookmark. Something powerful happens when a child of God seeks to know more about him and his beloved son. Nowhere are those truths taught more clearly and powerfully than in the Book of Mormon. Since President Monson's challenge six months ago, I have tried to follow his counsel. Among other things, I have made lists of what the Book of Mormon is, what it affirms, what it refutes, what it fulfills, what it clarifies, what it reveals. Looking at the Book of Mormon through these lenses has been an insightful and inspiring exercise. I recommend it to each of you. During these six months, I have invited various groups, including my Brethren of the Quorum of the Twelve, missionaries in Chile, 
and mission presidents and their wives gathered in Argentina to consider three related questions that I urge you to think about today. First, what would your life be like without the Book of Mormon? Second, what would you not know? And third, what would you not have? Enthusiastic answers came from these groups straight from their hearts. Here are just a few of their comments. Without the Book of Mormon, I would be confused about the conflicting teachings and opinions about so many things. I would be just like I was before I found the Church, when I was searching for knowledge, faith, and hope. Another said, I would not know about the role the Holy Ghost can play in my life. Another, I would not clearly understand my purpose here on earth. Another respondent said, I would not know that there is continuing progress after this life. Because of the Book of Mormon, I know that there is really life after death. That is the ultimate goal for which we are working. This last comment made me reflect on my life decades ago as a young surgical resident. One of the sobering responsibilities a surgeon bears on occasion is to inform the family when a loved one passes away. In one hospital where I worked, a special room was built with padded walls where family members could receive such news. There, some people manifested their grief by banging their heads against those padded walls. How I long to teach those individuals that death, though difficult for surviving loved ones, is a necessary part of our immortal existence. Death allows us to progress to the next world. Another respondent to my question said, I did not have a life until I read the Book of Mormon. Even though I had prayed and gone to my church all my life, the Book of Mormon helped me to really communicate with Heavenly Father for the first time. Another said, Without the Book of Mormon, I would not understand that the Savior not only suffered for my sins, but He can heal my pains and sorrows. Yet another I would not know that we have prophets to lead us. Immersing ourselves regularly in the truths of the Book of Mormon can be a life-changing experience. One of our missionary granddaughters, Sister Olivia Nelson, promised an investigator that if he would read the Book of Mormon daily, his test scores on his university exams would improve. He did, and they did. (laughs) My dear brothers and sisters, I testify that the Book of Mormon is truly the Word of God. It contains the answers to life's most compelling questions. It teaches the doctrine of Christ. It expands and clarifies many of the plain and precious truths that were lost through centuries of time and numerous translations of the Bible. 
The Book of Mormon provides the fullest and most authoritative understanding of the Atonement of Jesus Christ to be found anywhere. It teaches what it really means to be born again. From the Book of Mormon, we learn about the gathering of scattered Israel. We know why we are here on earth. These and other truths are more powerfully and persuasively taught in the Book of Mormon than in any other book. The full power of the gospel of Jesus Christ is contained in the Book of Mormon, period. The Book of Mormon both illuminates the teachings of the Master and exposes the tactics of the adversary. The Book of Mormon teaches true doctrine to dispel false religious traditions, such as the erroneous practice of performing infant baptisms. The Book of Mormon gives purpose to life by urging us to ponder the potential of eternal life and never-ending happiness. The Book of Mormon shatters the false beliefs that happiness can be found in wickedness, and that individual goodness is all that is required to return to the presence of God. It abolishes forever the false concepts that revelation ended with the Bible and that the heavens are sealed today. When I think of the Book of Mormon, I think of the word power. The truths of the Book of Mormon have the power to heal, comfort, restore, succor, strengthen, console, and cheer our souls. My dear brothers and sisters, I promise that as you prayerfully study the Book of Mormon every day, you will make better decisions every day. I promise that as you ponder what you study, the windows of heaven will open, and you will receive answers to your own questions and direction for your own life. I promise that as you daily immerse yourself in the Book of Mormon, you can be immunized against the evils of the day, even the gripping plague of pornography and other mind-numbing addictions. Whenever I hear anyone, including myself, say, I know the Book of Mormon is true, I want to exclaim, that's nice, but it's not enough. We need to feel deep the inmost parts of our hearts that the Book of Mormon is unequivocally the Word of God. We must feel it so deeply that we would never want to live even one day without it. I might paraphrase President Brigham Young in saying, I wish I had the voice of seven thunders to wake up the people to the truth and power of the Book of Mormon. We need to be like this young missionary serving in Europe who felt so deeply about the truth of the Book of Mormon that he literally ran with a copy of this sacred record to the man in the park that he and his companion had just found. I testify that Joseph Smith was and is 
the prophet of this last dispensation. It was he who, through the gift and power of God, translated this holy book. This is the book that will help to prepare the world for the second coming of the Lord. I testify that Jesus Christ is the literal and living Son of our living God. He is our Savior, our Redeemer, our great exemplar, and our advocate with the Father. He was the promised Messiah, the mortal Messiah, and will be the millennial Messiah. I testify with my whole soul that in a most miraculous and singular way, the Book of Mormon teaches us of Jesus Christ and His gospel. I know that President Thomas S. Monson is the prophet of God on the earth today. I love him and sustain him with all of my heart. I so testify in the sacred name of Jesus Christ. Amen.
Father, it is good that we have been here. We give thanks for what we have heard, for the time and efforts of preparation, for the messages that have been delivered. We pray that we might understand and apply. We pray for our president, President Monson, that he will be blessed and strengthened and continue to guide us. We pray for Elder Hales and for many others who need special blessings at this time. May we be guided as we continue to serve Thee and move Thy work forward. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. This has been a broadcast of the 187th Semi-Annual General Conference of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Speakers were selected from the general authorities and general officers of the church. The music for this session was provided by a youth choir from stakes in the Midvale and Sandy, Utah areas. This broadcast has been furnished as a public service by Bonneville Distribution. Any reproduction, recording, transcription, or other use of this program without written consent is prohibited. You're listening to the 187th Semiannual General Conference of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints on KSL FM Midvale, KSL Salt Lake City.